Well, good morning, everybody. It's a good thing that we uh, have this service together. Uh, it's awesome just to see everybody in, in one place. Although uh, it does put the job that I have a little bit more difficult because if you normally attend 8.30 service, your stomach is rumbling and you're thinking about breakfast and you're thinking about where you would normally be at this point in time. Uh, if you're at 11 o'clock, uh, good morning. We're glad that you are awake and alive and here. Uh, and so uh, for all of us, we're outside of our normal time slot. Maybe you're outside of the place that you sit. And, um, but it's good that we're in one place. We have the opportunity to do this a couple of times a year. Uh, just to to be together, and, and we've uh, kind of made some intentional decisions that as we do this, we would almost kind of rotate, and so uh, today uh, we are in the sanctuary, and our service is a bit more traditional. Uh, there have been times in the past where our combined service has been a little bit more contemporary in the FLC, and we try to uh, alternate that uh, back and forth, and so thanks for being here today. Uh, I am excited for th- the next couple of weeks as we get started into things. Uh, next week we are Uh, doing backpack blessing, and we're also thinking about ways that we're going to engage and um, connect and prioritize our faith moving forward. The week after that, we're going to talk about uh, invitation, which is really the the vision focus for this next year. Uh, Do you know that 80% of people who find themselves in a new relationship with Christ, uh, the main thing that they would attribute that to is that someone else extended an invitation in their direction? Uh, It wasn't because they saw a billboard, it wasn't because they stumbled upon the Christian station, it wasn't because, it's because somebody took the time uh, to express concern and love in their direction and invited them and actually said, will you come with me to church, to group, to this retreat, to whatever the case might be. And so uh, we're going to look at that in a couple of weeks and then uh, we kick off with our fall sermon series beginning on the 22nd and uh, novel concept, we're going to talk about Jesus. This, this fall. So, uh, no. But in particular, Jesus in his own words and what Jesus had to say uh, about himself. And so that's where we're going over the next uh, several weeks. Today, I just want to share uh, some brief words with you in regard to communion as we prepare our hearts and really make the, uh, the focus how we're going to end this morning um, in what typically we do every month, uh, but share in a time of communion together. And I want to just draw our attention specifically today Rather than doing communion as part of another series that we're in or part of another message today, make that the focus of what we're going to think about uh, here together. And so I want to read for you a passage out of Matthew chapter 26. Extremely familiar words uh, to you uh, this morning, most likely. This is on the last evening as Jesus is with his disciples. Verse 26 says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks... He broke it, gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom." And so this, as well as the other Gospels and a few other places in the New Testament, sets for us uh, the basis of of what we do once a month. Now, maybe you grew up in a church that you did communion every week. Maybe you grew up in a church that you did communion about four or five times a year, uh, whatever it is, but with some frequency, with some aspect of regularity inside of church life, this is one of the things we do more often than anything else, even if you grew up in a church that did not do it that often. 
And so this is one of those uh, rituals, if you will, and that gets kind of a bad name. You know, ritual seems like something that's cold and lifeless, but it's one of those uh, things that we do that bring meaning inside the life of the church, because I think that for us, once a month, we have the opportunity to recenter and to think about the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. And we've come at that from a number of different ways, from uh, the reality that this is Jesus' last evening with his disciples. And so they're gathering for this Passover Seder meal, and so already around the table, there is a lot that's happening, a lot that's going on. There's the emotion uh, in Jesus for what is about to take place. There's the confusion in the disciples. They know that something's taking place, but they don't really quite understand. There's the aspect that there's this Seder meal that for all of those uh, Jewish men had taken part in year after year, and there was symbolism to the bread that was there and certainly to the cup that was there. It was so much more than an object lesson, but it's Jesus uh, still, though, probably shocking for him to say, uh, this bread that you're eating, this is my body, and for Thaddeus or Philip to say, whoa, what? This cup that you're going to drink, and I want you all to drink it, but this is my blood. I wonder if there's an element that are like, whoa, 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 like, Jesus, that's not what we heard growing up. This cup that you're passing around was known as the cup of redemption, and, and that we thought of, you know, the the redemption of God from Egypt, you know, as he brought us out to give us a land that was our own. This is a serious, but this is a celebration meal that we are sharing together. And Jesus infuses it, and it gives new meaning. The bread we, we've often talked about was symbolic of the presence of God, that there, even inside the Holy of Holies, the bread of the presence that God would never leave his people would always provide for them the symbol of, of manna, what bread means, and even to think about Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the house of bread. And so there's deep significance that, that we've thought about probably throughout the years and the different approaches that we have to communion about the bread or about the cup as pointing to the blood that without the forgiveness or without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But why do we do this? How often should we do this? What do we think about when we do do this if we've just done it three weeks ago? The reality of what's taken place. And so I, I had a seminary professor who uh, was an anthropologist, anthropologist. He had been a missionary for a number of years in uh, Papua New Guinea. And so he was uh, teaching it and talking about how uh, words and, and language for the gospel really take shape. And how when you're trying to translate, it's not just simple as this word means this and, and to translate, you know, words of scripture, but he would talk about contextually what it means to find meaning. He challenged us one night, and I remember it was an evening class, and so they, those have a little bit different feel than a daytime class, and we were sitting there and he said, I wonder if for the North American church, or let's even go a little bit more specific for the youth groups that some of you are leading or are going to lead, if instead of bread and grape juice, if we should have Coke and potato chips. Now, some of us laughed and some of us gasped inside of that moment that here is the seminary professor suggesting, by the way, we're not doing that later. It might look like, it looks like a basket of potato chips, but it's not, I promise. Um, I want to keep my job for a couple more weeks, but... But he said, would that be a more contextual thing? Because Jesus takes a very common element in bread and the most common of drinks uh, of wine that, that's there because of you know, the lack of purity or, or the trustworthiness of water 
uh, wine was the way to, to get the liquid that you needed in the course of your day. If those things you couldn't get more common than that, he said, I wonder if the best way to point out what Jesus is, is you take the thing that you most eat or most drink, and that's what we should use. Now, none of us are suggesting that that's the case, but again, there, there is depth inside of what it is that Jesus introduced this meal for us to partake of, and yet sometimes it's easy for us just to drift into this becomes a religious ritual. Do you know Paul in the book of 1 Corinthians spends nearly two chapters correcting the Corinthian church about how to eat this meal? And yeah, when we read that, it, it sounds you know, like extraordinary circumstances because he's talking about some people are com- coming there for their entire meal and other people aren't, aren't eating at all. And you know, some people are getting drunk off the wine and you know, different things. And we're thinking, we don't have those problems. We're good. But I wonder if, if Paul was writing today to the church at St. John's, if he would say, this meal that you participate on, I have a few things that I want to remind you of. Now, I don't pretend to know what those things would be, but I think it's worth considering this meal that we take roughly 12 times a year. Is it something that we just do, or does it point to something greater inside of our lives? Do you know it's possible for the primary things to get forgotten? It's also possible for the primary things inside of our lives to become routine, common, and part of the backdrop of our lives. Now, forgive me if you've heard me mention this story before. A a few of you have, but uh, there's a gentleman I listen to sometimes that Rachel finds incredibly boring, but I find it entertaining. Uh, Garrison Keillor with, you know, his stories from Lake Wobegon. And so Garrison Keillor has this engaging way in kind of the Minnesotan, Lutheran, you know, backdrop of culture. And he tells stories about life that seem to, Rachel would say, go on and on and on and on. But then there's always that moment that's either the punchline or the moral of the story. And so I, I like listening to him. And, and so every once in a while, uh, if we're driving in the car and music just gets you know, boring after a while, I like to put on something else. And again, uh, not when Rachel's driving do we listen to Garrison Keillor because I would put her to sleep. But he tells the story on uh, Thanksgiving that as they gathered together as family... One of the things that they would do each and every year, they would ask Uncle John to pray. And Uncle John was, you know, one of the spiritual leaders inside of their family and their extended family. Uh, but the thing with Uncle John is you weren't going to get just a quick, thank you for this food, bless it to our bodies, amen, type of prayer. Uncle John had long, extended prayers. It wasn't just the length of his prayers, though, but it was the fact that every time Uncle John prayed, he would talk about the cross. And Garrison Keillor goes on and he says that whenever that time came and you could just smell all the smells and you were so hungry and, you know, your mouth was watering and your stomach was, was turning, that then they would say, Uncle John, will you pray? And he said, all of the young boys began to just, uh, and they began to squirm a little bit where they were because Uncle John would start talking about the cross and without fail, every time he started talking about the cross in the middle of his prayer, he would begin to weep and begin to cry. Garrison Keillor says there's two things that are very uncomfortable on Thanksgiving afternoon. One is when you're squirming through a long prayer, and second is listening to a grown man cry. But then he gets to this point, and he says that in the midst of that, here's what he says, we all knew, speaking of the family there, we all knew that Jesus died on the cross. The problem was Uncle John never got over it. 
We all knew that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, but Uncle John never got over it. I think that's a good analogy. We all believe that Jesus died for our sins. If you've been in church, if you uh, exist inside of you know, the Christian culture that still exists inside of our country to some degree, you've heard that, and that's something to be true, that Jesus died for our sins. Yes, nod our head, and we look at a cross, and, and we know intellectually what that means. But there's no need to cry about it at a family meal. Do you know one of the things that communion is called sometimes is the great Thanksgiving? It's a family meal. And I'm not suggesting that the level of your spirituality this morning is dictated by whether or not you cry in a couple of minutes when you're invited to the front to receive communion. If that were the case, you would kick me out because I'm not a very emotional person when it comes uh, to that. But I wonder if the challenge is We all know that Jesus died for our sins, but sometimes we've gotten over it. We've not forgotten it. We've not rejected it. We've not left it behind. But we've gotten over it. We've gotten over it in a sense that it doesn't maybe grab us the way that it did when we first came to know Christ. We've gotten it over it in the sense that there's still the same problems that are awaiting us tomorrow, whether or not that's true or not. We've gotten over it because theologically we know that it's true and we know that we're going to spend eternity, but we're not very happy and content where we are right now inside of life. We all know that Jesus died for our sins, but maybe we've gotten over it. So Paul says this in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 7, and this is the Good News translation. For by the blood of Christ we are set free. That is, our sins are forgiven. How great is the grace of our God. A little bit more in context, let's uh, read inside of the message uh, some of the the context uh, of this verse in the message translation. Because of the sacrifice of the Messiah, his blood poured out on the altar of the cross, we're a free people, free of penalties and punishments, chalked up by all of our misdeeds, And not just barely free either, but abundantly free. By the blood of Christ, we are set free. Our sins are forgiven. How great is the grace of our God. I want to lift up just those three phrases for us this morning as kind of a precursor to communion and maybe a phrase that we bring up with us as we come to participate in this meal that we've participated in. The first is how great is the grace of our God. It's probably impossible to come to church any week without singing or saying or hearing the word grace. It's just part of the backdrop of what we do, but maybe sometimes it gets lost. The very fact that the Protestant church exists, uh, one of Luther's key points was solo grazie, solely grace, only grace. By grace alone we've been saved, the Apostle Paul would say. Grace is not getting what I deserve and getting what I don't deserve. Grace is the fact that there's a God who went ahead of me that, regardless of what I deserved, he ushered in a new reality for my life. And so amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Communion gives us that opportunity to once again to renew grace as the dominant theme that runs inside of my life. That not only brings me to where I am before God, but also leads me forward inside of how I make choices and decisions. What he saved us from, but also what he's saving us for 
and to make a difference inside of my life that we see the hand of God at work. How great is the grace of our God. The second is we are set free. Do you know there's a whole retail space now around people trying to escape and get free? One even, ironically enough, that exists on the site of where the the original church of St. John's was, there's now escape room. (laughs) Think about that. I hope that the best escape room in Washington Township is not on the former site of St. John's, but on the current site of St. John's. We're an escape room, right? That, That the love of God, that the grace of God, how great is the grace that we are a people who are set free. And yet all around us, the people that you know, the people that you lock eyes with, maybe even the person in your mirror, we walk around shackled sometimes. What would it look like to be free? What would it look like? And I think I have one, one picture that, that cinema portrays this from the Shawshank Redemption. What would it look like? What was his Andy Dufresne, right? Was that his name when he was finally free? This doesn't look like most Christians I know. This is not a portrait, I'll have to be honest, on most days of my life that we celebrate the freedom of what he's already done, but also the ways in which he is setting me free from the things that would seek to bond and enslave me. How great is the grace of our God that we've been set free. Set free from guilt and sin and shame and bondage and old patterns and things inside of our life that would threaten just to hem us in. Even if you've walked with him for years, there are sometimes things that Well, those four things, or maybe you come up with your own list that kind of hem us in a little bit and weigh us down and tie us up. Charles Wesley, one of the famous Methodist hymns, talks about, and can it be? This is the third verse. Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night until thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed me, followed thee. Long my imprisoned spirit lay until the Spirit of God came and broke loose the chains that bound me. Do you know and you know and understand this about freedom, that freedom is free, but yet it costs someone something. We think about that perhaps on July 4th or on Memorial Day or Veterans Day. Freedom is free, but it costs someone something. It always comes at a price, and it always demands a response. And so even perhaps the same way with grace, that we celebrate the grace that has already been active inside of our lives, and yet it also propels us forward, we celebrate today the things that we've already been set free from, but also you've been set free for something else, that the things that once were enslavements inside of your life, now you can be a witness to. The things that once held you back and held you down and held you in now can be part of the testimony that helps break somebody else loose. And if we believe that God doesn't waste anything, any experience inside of our lives, maybe even the deepest pain or the hardest circumstance that you've walked through, what would it look like for God not to waste that but to use that that you might even be an encouragement or a help to somebody else going through the same thing? Because the God who wants to break you free also wants to use your life to break someone else free. And third, our sins are forgiven. This is the most common 
imagery and language that we use around the cross. Yeah, we talk about the grace, the great grace of God and the fact that we've been set free, but also the things that stood between us and God are now no more, that our sins have been forgiven. There's a blank slate, there's a restored relationship, there's a second chance, there's a clean conscience, and I want to say again, just like with being set free, I wonder if a people who have been forgiven much have any right inside of our lives to not forgive. Because God inside of our lives has forgiven this much to restore us, and yet sometimes we have difficulty inside of those relationships in our lives forgiving this much. And I'm not minimizing by making it look like this, I'm not minimizing any of the hurt or pain or the distance inside of your relationships that's taken place. But when you think in light of eternity and your relationship with God, how is it that a forgiven people find it so hard to forgive? That a people for whom God has done everything to bridge the gap, to wipe the slate clean, to offer something anew, that we still walk around with relationships that are distant, hatred and resentment and bitterness inside of our hearts, knowing that the whole time it only affects you. The person that you've not forgiven, they probably do not care whether or not you've settled it inside of your heart, but it continues to tear you apart. And so I'm going to leave those three phrases up. Even as we come forward for, uh, until we come forward for communion in a couple of minutes. I want to ask you to grab one of them. Maybe two, but if you just look at all three, again, it becomes things that we've heard so, so often inside of our lives that it becomes so generalized, but I want you to grab a hold of one of them. I doubt it's a new concept. It may not be an overly penetrating concept for you today, but which one of these is God seeking to do a work inside of your heart? There were people who not just walk in the shadow of grace, but grace becomes the dominant theme inside of our lives. That we're people who are set free, no longer slaves to sin and to fear, to habits and addictions and old patterns, but we're people who have been set free also to give testimony to God that other people might be set free. And we're people who have been forgiven who also need to forgive. So, each one of these, each and every one of these phrases is present tense. I think our faith, our relationship with God is always a present tense reality. It's not just what God did for you 20 years ago or even last week, but faith is a present tense reality for today. And so this morning, we're not going to rush this time. The, there are going to be ushers who are going to tell you when it's time you're going to come down and take a piece of bread and take the cup to receive them together. And maybe you want to go back to your seat. Maybe you want to go to the altar. Maybe you need to go to a Sunday school room or somewhere where you can make a telephone call. But I'm going to ask that communion this morning is not just what we do because it's the family meal that we participate in every month. And to be honest, we all know that Jesus died for us, but most of us have gotten over it. But I wonder today what it would look like to penetrate our lives in such a way that the things that we know to be true and that we've heard all of our lives, that something takes, takes root in a deeper way today.
that grace becomes the dominant theme, that we are people who are set free to set others free, and we are people who are forgiven to offer forgiveness inside of our lives as well. You don't have to be a member of St. John's. We say that every month, not only just for the benefit of new people, but as a reminder, the table is not just the thing that Christians are invited to come to to show that we're in, but it becomes the great invitation of our Savior who laid his life down for us. And so inside of these moments, where is God speaking? Where is God pointing? Where is God moving inside of your lives? Maybe just grab onto one of these phrases and make that your prayer. Make that uh, the item that you think about this morning as you come forward. So I want to invite those who are assisting to to come forward at this time and invite you. Will you uh, bow for a word of prayer? Father, we would pray that inside of these next moments that you would speak, that you would direct, that you would nudge, that you would remind, that you would compel, Lord, that you would move inside of our lives with really an act that most of us have lost track of the number of times that we've done it. Lord, through a piece of bread, would you remind us of your broken body that you willingly laid yourself down on the cross for us? Lord, through the cup, would you remind us of your blood that was freely and willingly poured out for the forgiveness of our sins? Lord, inside of these moments, would you speak deeply to our hearts about your grace that goes before us, your grace that compels us, your grace that becomes the dominant theme of our lives? Would you speak deeply even to the places maybe where where we continue to walk in bondage to patterns and habits and circumstances and, uh, you know, perhaps areas of sin? Lord, would you do the work to set free this morning? And Father, we thank you this morning that we find in you forgiveness. And so maybe there's one or, or two that need to come and Maybe for the first time inside of their lives, ask that you would be the one that forgives their sins and comes to take up residence inside of their hearts. But Lord, as well, for some of us, we carry around relationships and conversations and and places where we have grown bitter and defeated, and maybe, Lord, you want us to extend that forgiveness. Not to change the situation, Lord, but because it continues just to pollute and contaminate our lives moving forward. So God, I would pray that in these moments that you would speak to our hearts as we join together in this family meal. Lord, help us to remember your death on the cross, but help us also, Lord, not to ever get over it. Come, Lord Jesus, we ask and pray. Amen.